Abraham, have you ever woken up early in the morning? Abraham was awakened that morning early to hear what he knew was God's voice speaking to him. And as he awakened, he heard what was to him some very, very strange instructions. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, and uh, we're going to begin reading with verse 1. Genesis chapter 22. Is this loud enough? Is it too loud? It's okay? All right. And it came to pass, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1, it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, or test Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham... And he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. Can you imagine being awakened to such instructions from the voice of God? Can you imagine how Abraham must have felt? Abraham is not just instructed to take his son Isaac, but God reminds him through the language that he uses that he is his only son, Isaac. And not only that he is his only son, Isaac, but it's his only son, Isaac, whom he loves. There wasn't very many things closer to the heart of Abraham than Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the one that was a miracle child. They had waited for him. They had tried, you remember, using their own attempts to fulfill the promise through Hagar and Ishmael, but that wasn't acceptable. That's not what God had in mind. And finally, Abraham, though he was an old man, and Isaac, though she was beyond, or, or Sarah, though she was beyond the years of childbirth, miraculously had a son. And this was the son of whom God had promised, I will make you uh, your seed great, like the stars of heaven in number. If you can't number the stars, neither will you be able to number your descendants. Ab Abraham knew that Isaac was the one. There was no question in his mind. And yet God is telling him in no uncertain terms, go and Offer your son for a burnt offering. What would Abraham do? The Bible records in verse 3, Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took one, two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and, and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Josephus records that this was not just the land of Moriah but what became known as Mount Moriah a very important hill in Hebrew history. And it says that on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide here with the, the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them Together, And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Oh, you see, Isaac knew about offering to the Lord. We'll look at some of this history of burnt offerings in a minute. Isaac was familiar with them. Ever since the days of the Garden of Eden, after they had been expelled from the gates of the garden, those two cherubim with their, with their uh, wings spread over the gate of the garden, with the, the light of the presence of God between them, and there an altar outside the gate where, where Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, or at least Abel, <laughs> sacrificed their offerings of lambs. God's people had continued the tradition. It wasn't just a tradition. It was the instructions of God. They were taught to offer these offerings as a sacrifice 
pointing forward to the Savior that would come. And so Isaac knew about this, and he says, here's the wood and and here's the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said in verse 8, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Oh, those are prophetic words. Abraham himself didn't even realize what he was saying when he said, God himself will provide a lamb for a burnt offering. And they went together, and finally as they built the altar and and laid the wood in order, the time came when Abraham had to tell Isaac, Isaac, the lamb that God has provided, the offering that God has instructed, is none other than you. Now there's lots of ethical dilemmas that we could start to question and quandary about, but the fact is that Abraham knew God's voice and he was following it. That's what the Scripture records. And Abraham was was following the instructions of God, being tested and proven by God, according to the Scripture, and he was seeing the providence of God in fulfilling his prophecy that God would provide a lamb. And if I could, could I get some help passing out these handouts once again? Bob and Brent, thank you. Um, We're going to look now at why Abraham and Isaac were both so familiar with this offering ritual why they were familiar with these sacrifices. And we're going to look back at the very first altar that is specifically enumerated in the Bible record. And uh, we talked last night about the fact that there must have been a sacrifice right there in Genesis chapter 3 on the very first day that sin entered the planet. And why did we see that? Because we saw that Adam and Eve were clothed by God in skins. And those skins had to come from animals, and those animals had to have died. And so we, we would understand that even though Genesis 3 doesn't describe it specifically, there must have been a sacrifice made. And we also saw the evidence from Genesis chapter 4 that Cain and Abel were coming to the gate, to the door of the garden, to offer their sacrifices there. And there God was also willing to provide a lamb for Cain if he had only had a heart. Because we cannot, even our own sacrifices that we bring to God are are really not good enough. God is the one that provides a sacrifice for us. We saw grace there once again at the gate of the garden. But I want us to look now at the first specific instance of an altar being built. And we're going to be following this through into the sanctuary tonight. Genesis chapter 8, and this is the story of Noah. And this is after the flood. The waters have receded, the waters have returned, and the ark has has grounded, and Noah has sent forth his birds, and finally they believe that the land is dry enough for them to actually leave the ark, and they do leave the ark. And what is the first thing that Noah does? The Bible says in in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, why is Noah offering these these offerings on the altar? Why did he build this altar after the flood? He built it specifically to give thanks, to give appreciation for his deliverance and the deliverance of his family from the flood. If we continue on in the history of ancient altars, we continue a few chapters further in Genesis chapter 12. And I hope once again you brought your Bibles tonight. Genesis chapter 12 and beginning with verse 7. This is the account of Abram. Abram is the man who followed God by faith out of his hometown, Ur of the Chaldees, and into the promised land. And as he's journeying, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, a promise given to him, verse 7. Genesis 12 and verse 7, The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there built he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Verse 8, He removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. What is Abraham doing? Abram, as he's known at this point. He is building altars to worship God, Right? This is his way of worshiping and making supplication, to making, making requests to his God. He's building altars. And if we continue on, 
Genesis chapter 13, the last verse, verse 18. Ab then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Do you see a, do you see a trend taking place here? Everywhere Abram went, he built an altar. An altar was his way of worshiping God. An altar was his way of obeying what God had instructed his ancestors to do in faith of a coming Redeemer. Abram was building these altars. Now, of course, today we don't build literal altars, do we? We have, I guess, one out in the courtyard here. It's a replica, but we don't use it as a means of worship. But symbolically, God's people are called to do nothing less. Morning and evening, Abram would gather his family together and worship at that altar. And we too are invited by God to come into his presence in a regular, systematic way and lead our families into the worship of the true God and lead our families into supplication and asking of blessings from the true God. And Abram gives us a wonderful witness of a man who was traversing a pagan land, but who was unashamed that he worshipped the creator God of heaven. He was unashamed that he was, the, he was worshiping a God who was different than the gods of the pagan nations around him. And Abram the first, became the first to name an altar that he built. If you notice with me once again in Genesis chapter 22, the story we began with here this morning. Genesis chapter 22, we find that as uh, God provides a, a sacrifice for him there on Mount Moriah, the Bible says in verse 14, Abraham called the, plate, the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said today, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Jehovah-Jireh simply means the Lord will provide. Abraham became the first to name one of his altars, and he named it Jehovah-Jireh because he believed that the God that he worshipped was a providing God, a God that could come through in even the most extreme of circumstances. Now let's look at different occasions for altars, and um, I hope you all have a, a little handout now. Uh, we've noticed that, uh, that uh, Noah built the first altar specifically mentioned in the Bible, Genesis 8 verse 20, but we've also seen a couple of different uh, purposes or occasions for these altars to be used. Noah used them for uh, his altar as a, an occasion to thank God for his protection and for saving him and his family from the flood. Abraham used his altars as a means of worship, worshiping the true God. And let's continue on down through some of the rest of this list. We won't look up all of these passages for the sake of time tonight, but in Genesis chapter 26, we find Isaac himself building an altar, trusting in God as a defender from the Philistines. Um, in Jacob, we find an altar being built after his years of sort of trying to do things his own way. He finally surrenders. Um, you remember the story of the night of wrestling, right? He surrenders and he builds an altar. And his altar is symbolic of his heart surrender that he now makes to his God. He surrenders his heart completely to God. Job also built altars, and this is very interesting because Job built his altars and offered sacrifices, the Bible records, he offered sacrifices for his children. I like that because it is once again a, it's a, it's a model of how we also should pray for one another. We should pray for others. That's a biblical example that Job gave us. In fact, Job is sort of a predecessor of the, altar, uh, the sacrifices in the Hebrew sanctuary that would have been made on a daily basis for the congregation. There are some people, there are some people who don't realize their spiritual danger. There are some people who don't realize their spiritual need. And Job felt that he needed to pray and offer sacrifices on behalf of his children. Now, that doesn't mean that God will save someone against their will. I can't pray for you and God forces you to be saved or lost. No, that's not the that's not the situation at all. But because Job was praying for his children, God was able to work in their lives in a way that he could not have otherwise worked. In the same sense, we have the sacrifices on a daily basis made in the courtyard of the sanctuary, the Hebrew sanctuary, in which there was a sacrifice made for the whole congregation. It wasn't the sacrifice just made for one person's sin who came in and confessed his, 
his sin and that sacrifice was offered. This was a sacrifice made on a regular basis, morning and evening, for the whole congregation. Because the, the, the principle is this. Even though some people aren't aware of their spiritual need, they still have spiritual needs. I am not aware of all of my spiritual need, am I? I don't even know all of the sins that the Holy Spirit will be revealing to my heart and to my awareness and I can take to Jesus. But right now, the, the sacrifice of Jesus covers those sins as well. And I have life so that I can learn and grow in that experience with Him. Does that make sense? So the very, the very life we live, if I could use the words of, of um, the Apostle Paul, um, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That doesn't mean everyone's going to live forever. But what it does mean is every single person, because of Jesus Christ, because of the sacrifice of the cross, has been given the opportunity, this temporal life. Otherwise, if there was no Jesus, just think about it. If there was no Jesus who died on the cross, and for those living before the cross, if there had been no promise, God purpose to give Jesus. If there was no Jesus, we should not be here today. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Sin separates us from God. God is the source of life. And our sins ought to instantly be our demise. Except that Jesus came and died. And so on a regular basis, the, the sacrifices were made in the courtyard even for the congregation who wasn't bringing specific sins. Wasn't bringing specific sins. Um, anyway, we could study that more, um, particularly in Romans chapter 5. Fascinating passage here. But Job is interceding on behalf of his children. And you and I have the opportunity through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf to live, to be alive, and to make the decision to have eternal life. And that's the most important decision that we can make. Amen? Moving on, we have Moses, and Moses builds an, offering, an altar in Exodus chapter 17 with a celebration of, of, of victory. Um, this is um, after the crossing of the Red Sea and so forth. Samuel builds an altar um, testifying to God's leading and the establishment of the government of Israel, even though it wasn't God's first choice for what he wanted for them to have a king they nonetheless um, offered a sacrifice and testified to God's goodness and leading. Elijah restores the altar on uh, Mount Carmel, and um, this altar is a signal or a sign of the returning of Israel to their God, a reformation, you might say, a revival and a reformation. And the events connected with these biblical altars were interwoven in the history of God's people and record that in joy or sorrow, in victory or in defeat, faithful men raised shrines to worship the deity and to remember the one who would come to die for their sins. All of these altars, in some way, prefigured Jesus. Jesus intercedes for us, right? Jesus is our uh, Jesus is our protector. Jesus is the one who provides for all of our needs. In, in every instance, there is an aspect of the ministry of Jesus and the death of Jesus that is prefigured by these altars. And so Jesus is the one that is symbolized. Jesus, we remember, we read last night in John chapter 1, verse 29, uh, John the Baptist announced him as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, right? Those lambs being altered were not being offered on the altars, were not themselves able to save the Hebrews. They didn't save Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. No, they could not save them. The blood of bulls and goats, Paul says in Hebrews very clearly, cannot take away sins. Someone else had to die. That, those animal sacrifices simply pointed forward to the great sacrifice that Jesus would make one day on Mount Calvary. And so the Lamb of God was being prefigured. And the good news is that just as the sanctuary service does not end at the altar, have you noticed that? Most of you have had an opportunity to go through the sanctuary now. Um, you don't, this, the sanctuary is, is not composed of a courtyard with an altar in the middle, is it? After the altar burnt offering... There's more for the priest to do. 
And so Jesus didn't stay in the tomb after his death. The sacrifice on, his, on the cross was complete. It was full. It was sufficient. It satisfied. But there was something yet for him to do. As, as Paul says in the book of Romans, he was raised again for our justification. He was, his ministry is necessary in our behalf. And we're going to be looking more later this week in the uh, coming a couple nights that we have together at the ministry of Christ in the other instruments of the sanctuary as well. And so this uh, symbol of the altar prefigures Jesus who would die for our sins and also be raised again to minister for us. Now I find this a very fascinating verse. This is before the temple is instructed um, yet. That's Exodus chapter 25. All the way back in Exodus chapter 20, God gives some very specific instructions about how to build altars. Isn't that interesting? Now, up to this time, we don't know much about how the altars were built. We know Noah built an altar, no specific description of what that altar looked like. We know that um, Abraham built altars. We believe they were probably made of stones just from the context and the, the words being used there. But there's no specific description of what the altars looked like. In Exodus chapter 20, the last few verses of the chapter, God specifically says you can make earthen altars. So some sort of a maybe clay brick or clay formed um, altars. They weren't just to alt- they were never just to offer sacrifices on the ground. That wasn't that wasn't acceptable. They were always to be elevated. They could use stone altars. Maybe even one large stone sometimes would be used. But there was something specifically that they weren't to do. If they made their altars out of stone, if you make me an altar of stone, God said, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have what? You have profaned it. Isn't this very, very interesting? I find this to be very fascinating. Because here in altar, we've just seen altars pointed forward to who? Jesus and the perfect sacrifice that he would make on our behalf. We understand that overwhelmingly it is the experience of justification that is pointed forward to by the altars, right? And the justification is something that we cannot put our own works into. And God says, your works, your works are not to be included in an altar meant to symbolize the coming death of my son. If you build an altar out of stone, they're to be the stones the way you find them, the stones the way I've made them, the stones the way they're naturally in their environment. You can't cut them, you can't shape them, you are not to touch them with an instrument that would profane the whole symbolism of the altar. Isn't that amazing? And what's even more amazing to my mind is that God puts this instruction about keeping human works out of the symbol of justification the altar of sacrifice, he puts that instruction at the very end of Exodus chapter 20. You remember what's at the beginning of Exodus chapter 20? The Ten Commandments. And we might think that, oh, the Ten Commandments were, are symbols of legalism, of salvation by works, right? That's, a, that's the way some people might read that verse. And some people have certainly made them that, right? Israel did that. They made works their stumbling stone. That's very clear in the New Testament. But they weren't supposed to. You understand? They weren't supposed to. God here bookends the chapter of the Ten Commandments with an instruction about the altar, the greatest symbol of forgiveness by faith, the greatest symbol of justification through the the works and righteousness of Jesus. And he gives us specific instructions right there. Your own human works are not to enter it. All symbolic. The problem is sometimes we don't read the rest of the story, don't do we? Sometimes we just read part, and we just read, uh, we don't read the rest. And I, this was something I just recently learned. I never saw this in Exodus chapter 20. I never realized that in the last part of that chapter, God was using symbolism that he intended to protect his people from legalism, from salvation by works, attempting good works. So... He says, if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. And this is a, 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 a fascinating juxtaposition we see here in Exodus chapter 20. 
Now, if we come to the altar of the sanctuary, we turn to Exodus chapter 27. Let's look in Exodus chapter 27 at the uh, instructions that God gave specifically about the altar of sacrifice in the Mosaic sanctuary. Exodus chapter 27, we find the first few verses, the instructions about building the altar of sacrifice. And it says in verse 1, And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. So you're talking about roughly six feet or so, five and a half, six feet, um, uh, no, seven and a half or so feet, eight feet. Some, there, there are different understandings of what a cubit is. Some leave it right at 18 inches. Some um, say it's a little more than that, 1.8 feet. Um, but at any rate, you're talking about, about approximately eight foot square and uh, an approximately four or five feet high altar. And uh, it says, "...thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and you shall overlay it with brass." And so let's just look a little more specifically at this altar. There were two materials to be used in constructing the altar. Acacia, or as the King James calls it, shittim wood with an overlay of copper or bronze plates. And if we were just to compare these two materials, we find the Bible speaks of them in various places as in, in sort of contrasting ways. Wood is spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as being perishable, something that if it's tried by fire, it is consumed, right? And we know there's many other things that would bring about the demise of wood from decay and termites and, and just uh, simple rot. Um, and bronze, on the other hand, is something that is enduring. And in the Bible, it's used in ways that it seems to be symbolizing might and strength and power. Um, we can, we're not going to look at all these verses. You can look some of them up if you'd like in the future. But um, they're using symbols. Usually when you talk about, for example, in the book of Daniel, when we talk about those voracious, that voracious beast with bronze um, we, and we talk about Zechariah, the, the mountain of bronze, the mountain of the Lord, um, and Micah and Job, etc. And uh, bronze is actually an, uh, an alloy of two metals, copper and tin, mingled together. Um, if we were to talk about brass, it's more like copper and zinc. And all three, copper by itself and alloys, we would today call brass and bronze, were, all three were existing in the time of Moses. So it's, it's sort of difficult for us to say exactly which of these metals or combinations of metals this bronze altar was. If you, if you might notice, the King James says bronze altar, or make it out of bronze. The New King James renders it brass altar. Uh, may seem like a very subtle difference, but at any case, it's, uh, it's an alloy made with copper. And copper is a very, very resistant um, resistant to heat, resistant to decay, resistant to corrosion, and so forth. And it seems as though that God may be symbolizing something here on, in, this, uh, in this, these materials. Um, humanity could be represented by the wood. In many instances, people are described as w wood or trees. Um, Psalm 1 uh, talks about the righteous man as a tree planted by the rivers of water. Um, and Isaiah points forward to Christ as a tree, and Matthew so refers to him as a tree, etc. And uh, so we, we may see here a mingling, or a description of the mingling between the humanity in which he came a little bit vulnerable, and at the same time the divinity of Christ, in which he is clothed um, and he is protected from the sin of this world. Um, there's also interesting here the horns of the altar. In Scripture, horns are illustrations of strength and power. We could notice that in Psalm 89, verse 24. Uh, we notice also that horns were used as containers for anointing oil, and horns were used as instruments to call God's people to worship. These are all, these are all ways in which horns were used, even in spiritual rituals. Um, the horns of the altar were sometimes used as a re refuge for desperate men. In fact, you remember there were a number of occasions where someone ran into the sanctuary and grabbed onto the horns of the altar. Well, this was actually something that God had provided, that this was, this was, a, this was a way that men could seek refuge when they were fleeing from 
punishment, um, whether it was just or at times unjust, and they could uh, place themselves under the protection of God. Now, that didn't always work. There were ungodly people who killed godly men even when they were holding on to the horns of the altar. Um, that was, there were, there were martyrs. Jesus referred to them. Um, the blood of Zacharias, um, who was slain there in the, in the temple and, and during the intertestamental period. Um, but there were also uh, situations where men held onto the horns of the altar, and God instructed there to be taken off and killed anyway. Joab was one of those. After he had, um, he had, he had murdered uh, inappropriately, he went and held onto the horns of the altar, and God directed that he be removed from the altar. So horns represent these many different things, symbols of protection, symbols of anointing. But how were they used on the altar? Um, victims were not killed on the altar. In some other pagan rituals, you might have suspected that the, um, the, the horns would have been used to somehow subdue or to lash down the victims before they were killed. Because in other, in other nations around Israel, some of their sacrifices were offered live. For that matter, they even offered children live in some of their sacrifices, right? And for those purposes and offering a live offering, you might have to tie the victim down or the, the sacrifice down before it could be killed and then burned or burnt alive. Um, but that wasn't the case with the altar in the sanctuary. No sacrifices were killed, actually, on the altar. They were, they were sacrificed, if you want to say it. They were killed before they were placed on the altar to be burned. They would be taken just a little bit north of the altar, and there there was a ritual in which the priest would, or the sinner, would um, place hand, his hand on the head of the the uh, sacrifice and confess his sins and uh, transfer the sins to the sacrifice in symbol, of course, and then with his own hand, if it was a sin offering, with his own hand the sinner would slice the throat of the, of the offering and the priest would collect the blood. Then parts of the offering would be burned, parts of the offering would be kept and eaten by the priests, and we'll get into that in just a little bit, a little more. Let's look a little more at this altar, though. The altar burnt offering is one of the names, Mizpah Ha'ala, from Hebrew, to ascend, and it, it conjures up an understanding of the smoke that would come off of the top of the altar, smoke being sort of this a symbol of complete um, immolation or consumption by the flames, um, consumption by the fire. Another name for the altar was altar of whole offering, and it pointed to the complete, um, again, consumption of every portion of the sacrifice. And two instances of these names of the altar referred to are in Exodus 30, the altar of burnt offering, and Deuteronomy 33. Now, it's interesting, when we look at this, this name, altar of whole offering, um, we see that uh, this is, must have been what Paul was referring to when he speaks in Romans chapter 12. And if you have your Bibles, look with me there. When he speaks to Christians, the, the New Testament, of course, is replete with sanctuary language, especially the book, uh, the writings of Paul, Paul being such a scholar of the Hebrew system. Um, Romans chapter 12, we see here Paul using clear, explicit sanctuary language when he says in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so the, the symbolism or the, the mental picture that Paul would be raising in the minds of his countrymen would be that we are to make ourselves as sacrifices for Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we offer ourselves literally, physically. No, not at all. But we give Him our best and our all, right? And that's the only sacrifice that God really can accept, isn't it? A whole sacrifice. We can't just give Him part of our hearts and part of our lives. Um, he wants our 
our whole hearts. Unfortunately, though, we have, we have wandering hearts, and sometimes it's easy for us to... We, we have good intentions. We want to place ourselves on the altar of His sacrifice, but sometimes we want to get up, and we don't want to stay there. And uh, it's my prayer that I can learn to evermore be surrendered and on the altar of Jesus. As, um, as one person prayed, for my life to be, to be, to be um, spent for Him. As, as Paul would pray, um, I will gla- very gladly, again in sanctuary language, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, be poured out. That would be more like a, a flower offering he was referring there in 2 Corinthians. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. And so these are the names that the altar would be given, could be given, and was referred to at times. Um, there were other names as well, but those two we'll just look at briefly here this evening. Now, as we look at the way that a sinner would approach the altar, we'll, we've looked now a little bit at this, briefly at this uh, instrument of worship in the sanctuary service, the Mosaic Tabernacle. And we would notice that if, if we were a sinner, we would have to approach the altar. We would have to get to the altar by some means. In the very beginning, when God told Moses to build the sanctuary, he said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may what? That I may dwell among them. In other words, God wanted to be close to his people. But he could not, he could not, he could not risk the misunderstanding or the lack of understanding of his people if they should not realize the seriousness of sin. And so God is doing, he's he's doing, you might think of it a little bit like a juggling act here. He's trying to be as close as he can with his people and yet at the same time communicate his holiness and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Sin separates us from God. Is that pretty clear? That's what happened in the beginning we looked at last night the angels, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. God spared not the angels that sinned, right, but cast them out of heaven. God didn't spare Adam and Eve, or in a way he did, but he couldn't keep them in Eden, right? He had to divorce them out, as that Hebrew word essentially means. He had to separate them, a painful separation from a very intimate relationship which he desired and wanted and, and pined for. He had to send them out of the garden. And so sin separates us from our God. And so he's, he's coming down to the camp of Israel, and in order to be close to them and at the same time communicate his holiness and their need for some rectifying of their sin problem, he places the sanctuary and the sanctuary process as a way of approaching him. And if you'll remember... There was, about, there was a distance to be kept from the camp of Israel to the ark. The ark was where his presence dwelled, of 2,000 cubits, or um, about uh, over half a mile, around half a mile. So there were to be a distance. And so I haven't found actually any artwork that would properly illustrate that because it would be sort of hard. If you had half a mile of empty plaza, which the Bible records, around the tabernacle, it would be hard for us to see in a painting the tents at all, right? They'd be like these little minuscule things off in the distance. But you understand the basic idea that that plaza should be much larger. And as a person would be convicted of their sin, as they would realize that they had sinned and they needed to exercise faith in the coming Redeemer, the one that would die for their sins, their coming sacrifice, as they would come and they would start passing through their neighbor's tents carrying a lamb, or if they were too poor, they would be carrying a, two turtle doves or two pigeons, or if they were too poor for that, they could, they could carry an ephah of flour, right? There was nobody to be excluded from the sanctuary service. As they came with their sin offering, whatever it was, the best they could afford, as they came in their way through the tents, you can just imagine what people would have done, right? It, it, it's, it's not that much different today. We have the little, people like to sort of watch and whisper. Have you ever noticed that? I don't think human nature is much different. And um, I can just imagine, oh, what did Jephthah do today? I wonder, if he, I wonder if he yelled at his wife again. I wonder if he did that. I wonder if he did this. And 
pretty soon rumors would flow, you know, and, but it didn't matter. Listen, the worship of God is between the soul and God. Amen? Let people say what they're going to say. But in order to make your way to the temple in the first place, you had to care more about what God thought about your life than what other people thought about your life. Doesn't that make sense? There had to be a humbling of the pride. And that's a hard thing. But it's the first step towards getting closer to God. God is there. God is wanting to dwell with His people, but He wants more than that. He wants a personal relationship with us. And to do that, we have to put aside what people think and, and go to seek the favor of God. And, and Jephthah would make his way across that plaza and into the temple and went into the courtyard. And as he entered the courtyard, he would go through that gate. And if you've been through the tour, there's probably been some, you've heard something about that. But that gate represents what or who? So much of the sanctuary represents Jesus, doesn't it? Um, Jesus says, I am the door. Um, talking about John chapter 10, the, sh the sheepfold, right? I am the door, and if someone will enter it, they'll find safety, they'll find salvation. And so the door through which they entered into the courtyard represented Jesus. There was no other way. There was only one way into the sanctuary. God could have made it convenient for the Israelites, coming from all four directions with all 12 tribes scattered around the sanctuary. He could have made it convenient and made four doors. But that would have ruined the symbolism of it, right? And as they came into the sanctuary, God made very specific instructions as to which way the sanctuary should be oriented. So that as they came into Jesus, as they entered through Jesus in the door, they had their back which direction? They, they were facing west and their back was to the east. And the most common religions of the day were actually sun-worshipping religions, and they all oriented their temples the opposite direction, so that in worship services, they were always facing east. God says, no, you're going to turn your back on the things of the ways of the world. You're going to be 180 degrees different from the way the world thinks and the way the world worships and the way the world does things, and you're going to face the opposite direction with your back to those things. Why? Because you're entering through Jesus, the only way. You're entering into the, into the door, into the, the path of salvation, if you want to say. And so these uh, symbols would, would be confronting each uh, sinner, uh, Jephthah or whoever he was, as he made his way to the temple. And as, as he, he got there, he would take his lamb and he would confess his sin. A lamb, if he was able to offer it, um, as I mentioned, other sacrifices, if he was unable. And as he confessed his sin on the head of that lamb, I want it to be very clear, he wasn't confessing that sin to a priest, was he? That wasn't the point at all. This was a ritual, really, of faith between the sinner and God. The, the priest wouldn't have to know what that sin was. That had nothing to do with it. It was symbolically transferring the sin, the guilt of that sin to the head of an innocent sacrifice who would then pay for that sin with its very life. And um, as I mentioned, the, the blood would be caught, the, the sin would be, would be uh, the, the, the sinner would cut the throat of the lamb, the blood would be caught, and then the, some of that flesh would go to the altar burnt offering, some of it would go to feed the priests, some of the blood would be sprinkled on the horns of the altar and sprinkled before the veil inside the sanctuary itself. All symbolism of what would happen in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man, right? All symbolism. We could, we could spend a lot of time looking at many, many details. But essentially, what is happening here? And, and I want to go through this very, very quickly because we're running out of time. As the sin is transferred to the lamb, the lamb then is divided different ways, as I mentioned, you have the sin being transferred to the priest, who becomes a sin bearer, and to the sanctuary, who also, or which also bears the sins of the people. And this is very important for us to remember, because when we talk later in the week about the, what would happen on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, it was all about reconciling the sanctuary itself. Not just the sanctuary. They had sacrifices on Yom Kippur for the priests, for the congregation, but for the sanctuary. Only on Yom Kippur was there sacrifices for the sanctuary itself, besides its initial, um, you know, ordinate, um, like, 
like, um, what do you call the christening or whatever, however, the like, dedication, thank you. <laughs> Besides the original dedication, only on Yom Kippur were there sacrifices made for the sanctuary itself. And that's because throughout the year, sin was being transferred, carried by the priests, carried by the sanctuary, records of sin, that would then be expunged and finally done away with forever, untraceable. Um, that's a whole nother study we'll get into when we talk about Yom Kippur. Jesus becomes, as the priest, partaking of the flesh. Jesus becomes our sin bearer in type. You understand that? And we'll look at the Bible in that just, just a second. And so the, the priest eats that Sin, uh, each that lamb representing part of that sin. Now I want you to notice a couple of things before we move on here. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 1. If you, if you question the fact that the Hebrews understood their sins to be in type, in figure, transferred to the sanctuary, we notice what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17 verse 1. He says, "...the sin of Judah is written with the pen of iron." And with the point of a diamond, it is graven on the table of their heart and upon the horns of what? Your altars. Now, do you think Jeremiah is literally saying that there's a record of sins that is engraven in some sort of micro-engraving on the horns of the altars? Whether he's referring to the... He's referring to both altars, I'm sure. The altar in the courtyard, the altar of incense, because blood was sprinkled there as well. No, it's not a literal record of sins, is it? But it was symbolically, because that's where the blood was sprinkled. That blood represented the sin that cost the life of the innocent sacrifice. And it was transferred to the sanctuary. It was transferred to the priest who ate of the flesh and became a sin bearer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21 makes it very clear what happens in not the typical, but in the real plan of salvation. For he has made him to, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Think about that verse for a while. This is probably one of the most amazing, amazing mysteries, how God could lay the sins of the world, my sins and your sins, on the Savior. How it's not just, it's not just, this verse goes beyond just Jesus bearing my sin. It says Jesus became my sin. Just like the priest eating the flesh of the sacrifice, that would become a very part of him. Jesus, Jesus in a real sense took my place. He became sin for me. And it's not just Jesus becoming sin. It, Paul makes it very clear. He says, he who knew no sin. For you and I, our consciences are somewhat um, maybe I should speak for my own. I don't mean to pass judgment, but we've lived in this world and sin becomes a little more mundane, right? Where we don't realize the exceeding horror of sin. But for Jesus, who knew no sin, who had a pure conscience, who had always had an unbroken relationship with his Father, for Jesus to become sin, friends, that's what killed him. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. They were shocked that Jesus was not only dead, but he'd been dead for a while. His blood had already separated, right? to the platelets and the liquid. And he'd been dead for a while. The cross didn't kill Jesus. The cross was a slow means of torturous death. People lived for days, over a week, often on crosses, Roman crosses. And Jesus died not because the nails killed him. Jesus died because the weight of the sins of the world broke his heart. And he could not physically bear your sins and my sins. He, he, he paid the price that you and I would have to pay of our sins. It's an amazing, amazing 
verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him to become sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That first phrase boggles the mind. The second phrase, <laughs> that's pretty glorious, isn't it? God offers freely his righteousness for you and for me. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, but Jesus' righteousness is offered that it might be applied to our account, that we might become who he was. He became who we are, that we might become who he is. He suffered our death that we might experience his life. What a, what a story. No wonder it's called the good news, right? And so what we find in the sanctuary service are all the elements of what we would today in theological terms call justification. We find repentance. Where do we find repentance in the sanctuary service? What is repentance, by the way? It's a, it's a, it's a sorrow for sin, right? It's a remorse. It's, it's, a, it's, it's feeling sorry not for getting caught. Judas was sorry he got caught betraying the Son of Man, right? But it's a sorrow that we've done something that hurt Jesus, and it's a willingness to turn away from it. And for a sinner, for Jephthah to leave his tent and to walk through the camp of Israel and carrying his sacrifice and to go across the plaza with all the wagging tongues and busybodies and, and uh, you know, gossipers that there must have been in the camp of Israel, it's clear that he had to have a heart of Repentance, or at least he was supposed to, right? That was the whole point. I'm sure people eventually got to the point where it was a badge of honor and they were proud and it was all works. But it was supposed to be a humbling of the heart and a willingness to take this journey through Israel for forgiveness. And then there's confession, right? As he would confess his sins on the head of the lamb, there was a confession that took place and there was faith in the forgiving power of the blood of Christ. And so this is the same, these are the same elements that you and I are called upon to experience still today, right? We're called to experience, a, it's a gift from God, repentance. When the Holy Spirit works on our hearts, when we see what we've done, when we see the, the ways that our lives have, have fallen short of the glory of God, because all of our lives have, when we see those aspects that we're not proud of, and we're willing to say, Lord, I want to put that behind me. And we turn our back on the things of the world. And we, we, we walk to the temple seeking Jesus, the door. And we enter it and confess and, and forsake our sins. Those are all the elements that God clearly expels out for us in the New Testament of the gospel, of forgiveness, of justification. And so this is the experience that God wants us to have. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How are we justified by faith? The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so forgiveness comes when we, by faith, claim the promises of God, we by faith are looking back to Calvary just as surely as by faith the sinners back then were looking forward to Calvary. It's all about Jesus, friends. The only way that a sinner can be saved, whether it's Abraham and Isaac or whether it's in 2013, the only way a sinner can be saved is by the blood of Jesus and by exercising faith in that blood. That's the only way that we can be saved. And the altar of sacrifice, symbolizing particularly the cross, symbolizing particularly our surrender to Him, is in a large way illustrating justification in the sanctuary service. But there in that story in Genesis chapter 22, the angel of the Lord called Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am, and... Genesis chapter 22 and verse 12, God said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And there in that story, he says, Behold, I've provided for you a ram. And as Abraham looked up and lifted up his eyes, he saw caught in the bushes there a ram that was just, just in time and just the right place, just the right um, specifications for his sacrifice. And he called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. And on that same mountain, some years later, well, 800 years later, Solomon would build his temple. And a thousand years after that, nearby on the hill called Golgotha, the Son of God would be crucified between two thieves. And once again, Abraham's prophecy would be fulfilled when he said to Isaac, God will provide a lamb. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When I think of altars, I have to pause and in part awe and in part amazement and in part just, I don't know if it's shame or humility, I have to realize that when God provided a lamb, he provided his only son who he loved and he let him die for me. I'm thankful for Jesus, aren't you? I'm thankful that God provided a lamb. And that lamb, that ram saved Isaac's life. By faith, the Bible says in Hebrews 11, Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac because he believed that he could raise him from the dead. He knew Isaac was the one. He believed Isaac could be raised from the dead. Think about it. There's no evidence that anyone prior to that time had ever been raised from the dead. And yet Abraham, by faith, believed God so much, he was willing to sacrifice what was nearest and dearest to his heart and became a type of the God of the universe who sacrificed what was nearest and dearest to his heart so that we might live. The question we have to ask ourselves tonight is, are we children of the faithful Abraham who believed God that much and was willing to, willing to exercise that kind of faith? There's a Savior who died on a cross who invites us to exercise that same faith in Him tonight, that our sins can be forgiven. We don't have to take a lamb to the sanctuary. We have to believe that Jesus died for me and for you, for us. That's my desire tonight. How about you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to study and to learn about the sanctuary. We've looked tonight at altars, and there's many purposes for altars. I suppose there's still many purposes for which we can stop and just bow on bended knee and, and uplift our hearts to you. But Lord, there's no greater purpose, no greater desire that you have than that we should come to the altar on which Jesus laid down his life, that we might by faith accept his death in our behalf, that we might be willing like Abraham to have such faith that we believe that those promises are for us, that you will fulfill those promises, just like you fulfilled Fill the promise that in, Ab in Isaac your seed shall be called. You'll also fulfill the promise to us that if we confess our sins, you are still faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. You'll fulfill the promise that therefore being justified by faith, we tonight can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look at the altar of sacrifice, we just want to pray that 
in another sense, we might be willing to put ourselves, our hearts, our lives on that altar, to turn our, turn our backs to the things of this world and enter through the door and be wholly yours, as Paul says, is our reasonable service. We thank you for this. I thank you for each person here and the desire of their hearts. Bless them tonight. Bless their homes. Bless their families. And bless us as we continue to learn more about the sanctuary. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.